Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. School kids might finally get to see what their classmates look like. The lead starts right now. More and more Democratic states are getting rid of school mask mandates as the U.S. waits for guidance from the White House and the CDC, but it might be too soon to throw those masks out. Is Vladimir Putin's mind in the gutter? The Russian autocrat makes a seemingly sexual joke about the Ukrainian president, all while diplomats are desperately trying to keep Russia from invading Ukraine and the pandemic side effect no one saw coming. More and more pedestrians are being killed on the road. CNN visits the so-called highway of death to try to find solutions. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start with the health lead and a turning point in this pandemic with a growing list of states making plans to drop their mask mandates. California, the most populous state in the country, will end its indoor mask mandates next week. Delaware will do the same and lift its mask rules for the schools soon, along with Connecticut, New Jersey, and Oregon. This shift at the state level is coming as case counts are starting to go down, as the, publicly, as the public has increasingly voiced discontent with the status quo. And while the Biden White House and the CDC have been slow to offer any transition plan out of the pandemic, but as CNN's Alexandra Field reports for us now, a group of pediatricians is sounding the alarm, noting that COVID cases among children remain way too high. A mask off. Tensions in schools erupting at a school board meeting in Illinois. Outrage and confusion reigning after a judge temporarily halted the governor's school mask mandate, leaving school districts to call their own shots. What we really need is we really need good criteria whereby which local agencies can actually make those decisions. Because otherwise you have individual parents trying to gauge whether or not they should listen to the CDC or whether or not they should listen to their school board. And that's a really tough decision to make. Nationwide, the American Academy of Pediatrics says COVID cases among children are still extremely high, though they are falling fast, down about 40 percent from the peak two weeks ago. Governors in Delaware, Connecticut, New Jersey and Oregon announcing plans to end school mask mandates. I don't think we've even really fully realized the damage that we have done to our children with masking these past two years. I think we're probably just beginning to see the beginning of it. So I do not think that the, the risk is worth the benefit. But the White House is still encouraging masks in schools while issuing no clear guidance yet for when states should roll back restrictions or how to do it. It really depends on what's the rate in the community. When the rate goes below a certain threshold, then it makes sense to dial back on masking. A new study on the effects of COVID on kids, the largest of its kind, looks at pediatric COVID infections before Omicron, finding 6% of children who tested positive were hospitalized. Nearly 14% of those children had severe illness, with about 1% of hospitalized children losing their lives. 
you have to think about the risk in general to healthy children, which is extremely low for severe outcomes. And you have to recognize that the best way to protect kids is by vaccinating them, if that's appropriate for them, and then vaccinating the adults around them. Vermont's governor is saying that every state needs to make its own decision about mask mandates. Vermont doesn't have mandates. Instead, they make recommendations to schools which have been widely adopted. The governor says he'll issue new mask guidance to schools by the end of the month, Jake. All right, Alexander Field, thanks so much. Let's bring in CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, new COVID cases are down 42 percent since last week. Hospitalizations are down 20 percent from last week. COVID deaths are up a bit. They're up 3 percent in the last week. Yet we have this growing list of states that are planning to drop mask mandates in the coming weeks. Um, are these decisions happening in spots where COVID is less of a problem? Um, in, in some cases they are, uh, but you got to keep in, keep in mind, Jake, that the, the entire country still really falls into this category of high transmission. There's still a lot of virus out there. That's, that's true. And at the same time, the numbers are coming down, as Alexander was just talking about. So you have two of these things happening at the same time. So people are trying to project now what the next few weeks are going to look like and, you know, using lots of data. But let me, let me show you, Oregon's one of the states you mentioned. Uh, let me show you sort of what happened in Oregon, because they've gone through this before. If you look back at sort of, uh, you know, right in the middle of June there, you'll see that's when the mandates for masks were lifted at that point. And, you know, you had a significant peak, some of that because of people not wearing masks, a lot of it because of the Delta surge. But that's sort of the point. Uh, You have to be nimble here. You have to sort of almost look at this like weather events. It might change. It might start to rain again and you might have to to mask up or take out an umbrella in the case of rain. So that's sort of the, you know, the, the pattern that we're sort of falling into. I think, you know, the quicker we come out of some of these these mitigation measures, the more prolonged. Uh, the the descent of this current surge is going to be. Here's how Dr. Tom Frieden puts it. The risk here is that you prolong the tail, as you as it were, of this curve longer out, and that means more people sick, more people with long COVID, more people hospitalized, and sadly, more people dying. Over 100,000 people, Jake, as you know, still in the hospital. Numbers coming down. But that, that's still a lot of people. So if you start to create even minor surges again in an already sort of full system, that's a problem. That's why you still want to go slowly. And again, of course, for anybody watching, the best way out of this is for everyone to get vaccinated and boosted. Right. Uh, Sanjay, a new study published today in the Journal of the American Medical Association, or JAMA, shows 6% of kids who got COVID ended up in the hospital. And of those hospitalized, nearly 14% had severe COVID, yet... Several states are ending mask rules in schools. Is this premature? I think it's, you know, sort of the same thing here. Again, you know, we're still in a place where there's a lot of viral transmission. We know kids are at a much lower risk of getting ill. But, you know, we're starting to get larger data sets now of just how much of an impact this really is on kids. We can show those numbers. Uh, Of the kids who tested positive, uh, you know, about 6% ended up in the hospital. Of them, close to 14% had severe disease. So, you know, these are, these are significant numbers. You know, there's been over 100,000 children that have been hospitalized uh, since August, uh, you know, of 2020. Uh, so it's, it's, the, these are numbers that s- certainly add up. And again, you know, I have kids, you have kids. We've thought a lot about this. Kids are at far lower risk. But when you're starting to talk about very large absolute numbers, hundreds of thousands of people uh, who are becoming infected in any given week, children, then even small percentages really do add up. And I think that's the point of this particular study. Right. One percent of 300 million 
<laughs> That's a lot of people. Right. Uh, throughout this pandemic, exactly. doctors have said that children are less impacted by COVID than adults, as you note. Um, so how much weight should we put on this, this new study and what it shows? Yeah. Yeah, this is a, that's a good question, Jake, because the thing about it is that this comes back to what I've often called the original sin, which is lack of testing or inadequate testing. Six percent of children who tested positive for COVID ended up being hospitalized. But there's probably a lot of kids out there who maybe have had it, never got tested, never really had much in the way of symptoms. So I don't think we still know what the denominator is here. How many children actually uh, would have tested positive for COVID if people were getting tested very broadly and widely? I think it's going to be a much smaller percentage is my point. But, you know, I think this is the largest study that's been done, really, looking at this. It's shown who is most at risk, the risk factors for uh, hospitalization, even among children. Um, So those things, I think, are important in this study. But again, we are still dealing, as we always have been for the last couple of years, with inadequate data sets here. Uh, today, the CEO of Pfizer said that Pfizer scientists do not believe COVID will be fully eradicated, at least not in the foreseeable future. So Pfizer is now focusing on what they're calling a next generation of vaccines and treatments. Take a listen. We believe these tools will help us, allow us to go back to normality and spend time with family and friends, travel, attend indoor dining and concerts, and enjoy many other activities while lowering the risk of overburdening hospitals and healthcare systems around the world. So he's talking about a new generation, but only 27% of Americans have gotten a booster <laughs> shot. So how do companies such as Pfizer make a plan for those people who didn't get the booster or the tens of millions who haven't even gotten vaccinated? Yeah, that was the first thing I thought as well, was there already are these tools in in place. You know, if people had been vaccinated and boosted, uh, we'd be looking at much smaller numbers overall. Um, So, you know, whether this turns into something, you know, that becomes more like a yearly flu shot in anticipation of of variants, uh, I still don't know. I'm not sure that that's going to be the case. What I'm most optimistic about when, when talking about the future here are some of these therapeutics as well. Um, you know, the vaccines we know are very effective. There's been you know, limited uptake, especially when it comes to the boosters. Medications like Paxlovid, which seem to be very effective not only against the current strains of circulating virus, but also against you know, potential future variants, I think is very promising. And as you know, uh, tens of millions of these doses should be available in the country by the you know, middle of the summer. So that's, 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 you know, that's pretty hopeful. I think that's a therapeutic that could really change how we think about COVID in this endemic phase. Being able to have an oral pill that you take uh, at home uh, dramatically prevents the likelihood of hospitalization, I think, is going to be key. All right, Sanjay, good to see you. Thank you so much. Coming up, who needs to come up with a budget when you're a member of Congress? Lawmakers shrugging off another key deadline. Plus, President Putin firing off a rather crude insult at Ukrainian President Zelensky, leading many Westerners to wonder... Did Putin just make a sex joke on the cusp of a potential war? That's next. Topping our worldly today, President Putin making a crude, possibly sexual joke at the expense of the Ukrainian president. Putin used condescending coarse language to demand that President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine submit to terms of a years-old ceasefire deal that Zelensky doesn't like. Here's what Putin said translated to English, quote, Like it or don't like it, it's your duty, my beauty. Zelensky firing back saying, we are not his. 
<clears throat> this says European diplomats blitz the continent, trying to take the high road and prevent what could be the biggest land war in Europe since World War II. CNN's Alex Marquardt joins us now live from Kiev, Ukraine. And Alex, why were Putin's comments so insulting and, and how can he do that in the middle of this armed standoff? Well, Jake, these comments absolutely were insulting and condescending, if not sexist and misogynistic, and very much in keeping uh, with what we know Putin believes about Ukraine, that it's not even a country, uh, that it's inferior, that it's a place where he can walk into and just annex uh, an entire peninsula. It's in keeping with the way that he talks, uh, this sort of boorish, uh, crass language that he's been known to use in the past. This was a comment that he made during the press conference with uh, French President Emmanuel Macron last night. After midnight in Russian, I think it took some time uh, for people uh, to, to really fully understand what he said. I doubt President Macron understood in the moment what was being said. And there has been some disputing over how uh, it, it is translated. But this essentially comes from uh, a, a, a folk saying uh, in peasant culture when there were arranged marriages when women did have to submit. And, Jake, there's no doubt here that President Putin is telling Zelensky that he has to submit. Now, the Kremlin was asked whether there was any sexual intent here. They denied that. They just were saying uh, that they, they were telling Zelensky that he has to abide by what's known as the Minsk agreements. Zelensky, as you noted, did have a classy response uh, saying that, indeed, Ukraine is a beauty, but we are not his. Jake. Why is Macron suddenly in the middle of all this, and has he made any progress? He's really thrust himself into the middle of this diplomatic process to try to de-escalate and, and prevent a war in, in Ukraine. He's become really a, a middleman, this go-between, um, and, and someone who's really trying to broker the, the two sides. Um, he is, uh, you know, he, he's, he's obviously more on the side of NATO and, and the United States, but he has perhaps a closer relationship uh, to Putin than most. He has spoken to Putin more times than other Western leaders uh, during this crisis. Um, and, and so he has, you know, he's been, there's been this flurry of diplomatic activity. He was in Moscow yesterday, Kiev and Berlin today. And today here in Kiev, he really did lay out what he uh, believes could be concrete, practical solutions to, to solve this crisis. One, he says, uh, they, the, the violence and the fighting in eastern Ukraine needs to end, and that needs to be done through that Minsk agreements. Uh, that is really the vehicle to, to end that fighting, he says. And the other is to create a uh, security agreement and guarantees uh, for uh, Russia and Europe. That, of, that of course, is something uh, that Putin really has been after. He has been uh, accusing Europe of uh, threatening uh, Russian security. So, you know, Putin is taking part in these talks. Talks are progress. The question is, is Putin simply biding his time before he eventually decides to invade Ukraine? Jake? All right, Alex Marquardt in Kiev, Ukraine. Thanks so much. A new unreleased report from the U.S. Army obtained by the Washington Post is detailing just how frustrated military leaders were with the Biden administration and other U.S. diplomats over the chaotic evacuation of Afghanistan last summer, the U.S. military is accusing senior White House and State Department officials of underestimating the Taliban and resisting efforts by military leaders to prepare for a smoother, more competent evacuation. Let's discuss with The Washington Post's Stan Lamoth. He covers the Pentagon, and he and his colleagues obtained this 2,000-page report. Dan, thanks so much for being here. We appreciate it. So this is the most comprehensive look from the Army's point of view about what happened during those final days in Afghanistan. There are military leaders on record in this report who say trying to get the embassy to engage in the evacuation planning was, quote, like pulling teeth. And, quote, the NSC, the National Security Council in the White House, 
was not seriously planning for an evacuation. Yes, that's right, Jake. Thanks for having me. This report was delivered to the Washington Post through the Freedom of Information Act on Friday, which is the same day that the Pentagon kind of rolled out some of their findings on that awful bombing we had in August where we had 13 U.S. troops killed. Uh, This report focuses on the bombing itself, but is much wider than what was cast at the Pentagon briefing on Friday. It includes, includes witness statements from the two top generals and the top admiral on scene throughout the evacuation. And yes, there's a great deal of frustration there. And, and you say the Navy Rear Admiral Peter uh, Vasily, the, Vasily. Uh, Vasily, the top U.S. commander on the ground during the operation, he told Army investigators, quote, military personnel would have been, quote, much better prepared to conduct a more orderly evacuation, quote, if policymakers had paid attention to the indicators of what was happening on the ground. Who's he talking about? And I mean, I find this incredible. It's not like you and I hadn't been covering since February that this was going to happen and people were worried it was going to be a disaster. That's right. I mean, it's deliberately vague. Uh, but, but I think uh, certainly in other parts of the report, it surfaces that he was quite frustrated with the, uh, the acting ambassador, Wilson. Uh, there was frustration with the National Security Council uh, and, and sort of this understanding that if you were going to evacuate and you knew you needed to evacuate, you needed to stage people, you needed to stage food, uh, you need to be ready. And there, there was friction to that in terms of when you would actually sequence evacuation and start making it more obvious that you needed to do it. That's so classic Pentagon that they don't call out the administration officials by name. I mean, that you and I know this from covering the military. They tend to criticize vaguely, right? They don't want to they don't want to sure. offend anybody so that they don't get the promotion or whatever. Right. I mean, is that how you look at it? I looked at it as trying to say what they felt they could while adhering to the tradition of nonpartisan uh, criticism that the military tries to go with. Certainly, it's going to be read in Washington as something different. Uh, According to the report at the U.S. Embassy in Afghanistan, one Army officer saw some State Department personnel, quote, intoxicated and cowering in rooms. This was on August 15th. Tell us more about that. Yes, and another shocking detail, a 10th Mountain officer, 10th Mountain Division officer who was interviewed, uh, and I don't know his name because anyone who below the rank of general officer, their name was redacted. Right. Uh, but the, the the 10th Mountain Division officer... I'm just laughing because, I just, just to be clear, it's because anything general officer and below, you know, send them to the wolves. But above that, including senators, members of Congress, NSC, et cetera, you know, they have to be protected. But go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. So you've got, assumedly, maybe a colonel uh, talking about what his own soldiers did and, and, and at least describing uh, this effort to go room to room in the embassy uh, find people who had not left the rooms, and basically get everybody out. And, and yes, there's the allegation that some of them were drinking, uh, and some of the embassy personnel that they found were more or less cowering in their rooms. And the response from the administration was basically, well, we never heard this, so it must not be true. It, yeah, I, I was surprised by, by the reaction. But yes, I posed this question last night about this, this bit in the report. Uh, and, and yes, the response was more or less, we haven't heard about it. If we hadn't heard it about it by now, more or less questioning the veracity of what was said. Right. Certainly the system is not built upon only presenting the rosiest of scenarios to people in the White House. That's never happened before. I would add that there are a number of other things in this report that none of us heard before now either. So it didn't strike me as, as a stretch that that would have been true as well. Dan Lamoth, great reporting. Thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Who knew the Postal Service could actually get Congress to agree the changes that could be coming to your mailbox? Stay with us.
In our politics lead, it's like kicking the can is the new normal for Congress. Today, the House of Representatives is voting on yet another short-term funding bill, allowing the government to stay open through early March. From the current February 18th deadline, a temporary solution while negotiations for a full funding deal continue. But as CNN's MJ Lee reports for us, this move also puts a longer hold on getting President Biden's agenda through Congress. We're going to buy American. American products made in America, including American component parts. President Biden pivoting back to his domestic agenda. The new manufacturing facility of tritium is, that's announced today is more than just great news for Tennessee. Yes, it's going to create more than 500 good-paying jobs in Tennessee, but it's going to deliver greater dignity and a little more breathing room to workers and their families. Biden attempting to cut through ongoing tensions in Russia and Ukraine and China's spotlight on jobs and wage growth during his first year in office. My first full year as president, the economy created 6.6 million new jobs. 6.6 million. That's never happened before in American history. But despite some promising economic data, the Biden administration confronting serious headwinds. Inflation at historic high levels, with everyday goods like gas and groceries costing more for American families. Goldman Sachs warning in a new report that substantial increases in retail food prices are expected to continue this year. We're going to create thousands of additional jobs, helping build America's products here in America. Manufacturing automobiles and appliances and so much more. And it's going to help ease inflation. Meanwhile, in Washington, Biden's Build Back Better agenda in limbo. In terms of the mechanisms and the legislative process, I just don't have any more predictions for you in terms of how it will proceed. With the economy poised to be a top issue in the November midterms. And with another government shutdown on the horizon, the House today voting on a short-term solution that would make its way to the Senate. It is the responsible and prudent path forward that eliminates the risk of a shutdown. Now, something that we've heard President Biden say recently is that he would like to get out there more. He wants to travel more, see people, talk about his administration's accomplishments. Well, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki just told reporters that he does have a lot on his plate. She pointed to a Supreme Court vacancy, the situation in Russia and Ukraine, and she said that she does think that he will have more flexibility and time to travel more, especially after he has delivered his State of the Union address next month. Jake. All right, MJ Lee, thank you so much. Let's discuss with Democratic Congresswoman Brenda Lawrence of Michigan. She's the vice chair of the all-powerful House Appropriations Committee. Congresswoman, thanks for joining us. If this CR, this continuing resolution passes, it will be the third time Congress approves a stopgap bill in the absence of a larger bipartisan agreement on government funding. Why are the two sides having such a difficult time getting any agreement on a longer-term bill? You know, we are in the most partisan state that I can recall. Everything is about partisan, but our budget is where we come together, Democrats and Republicans. It's about what are our values in America. And this budget that I firmly support will address child care issues, clean water, which you know, being from Michigan, it's a priority for me and investing in our economy and small businesses. We're almost there. You know, this is the grind. We're making sausage. It's painful to live through. But however, we are going to do the CR and continue to fight for another day where we can get an underbus and pass this budget. And also, 
what's included in here is our community project funding. And Democrats and Republicans have projects that are in this bill. It's something in here for all of us. So it's not just a Democratic bill. And I'm looking forward to us passing because it's an amazing budget. You were able, not you personally, but, but the Congress was able to pass a, uh, an immense bipartisan defense spending bill, though, right? Yes. I mean, what do you say to somebody who looks out, looks at Congress and says, so you guys can all come together to spend an unbelievable amount of money on, on, for weapons contractors and guns and the military, but you can't come together when it comes to funding uh, any other domestic priority? Well, I mean, I can ask you, why haven't we passed the voting rights bill, one that historically have been passed? Why didn't we address the George Floyd injustice bill, when we know that this entire country, every single state, had outpour of people to come and address this. We have to keep pushing, and that's the responsibility of, of us in Congress, to keep pushing it, to keep challenging it, and hopefully reach some kind of consensus that at the end of the day, we're taking care of the American people. So, Congressman, how does this delay, stalemate, whatever you want to call it, how does it do- impact some of uh, President Biden's other legislative priorities, such as, for example, the Build Back Better Act? So the Build Back Better is something that we should pass. Um, we work very hard on that. And we know that some of the naysayers have their piece of the pie because they had influence on shaping Build Back Better. But the reality is, if we have to tear it apart and vote one piece at a time, We've got to get some of those things passed. Child care in America is a direct impediment to women working and women going back to work. We have to address that. And we have to address the fact that child care in America is not affordable to so many people. And that affects the father, the mother, the entire family. Those are things that we must come together and address. But Biden is doing some great things. I mean, the transportation bill, you can't just blow that off. It's transformational, the first time since the New Deal. Mm -hmm. And then you add to that the rescue plan. So many people say Biden hasn't done anything for him. Did you get a stimulus check? Did you get unemployment supplement? Did you get a vaccine for free? Did we hold this country together where we're now seeing the jobs grow every single reporting period where people are going back to work? And so the Biden administration has to be given the credit of all the things they're doing. And when you're in this seat, you always have a challenge and you always have something new to work on. And we're doing the work. You're a 30-year veteran of the U.S. Postal Service. Today, the House is set to vote on a bill that might help the U.S. Postal Service save billions over the next decade and ensure that mail is delivered on time along with other issues. This is legislation that has wide bipartisan support. Mm -hmm. Explain why it's important. It's important, you know, when when you say 30-year, I'm the only member of Congress right now who has ever had a career in the Postal Service. The, The Postal Service is mandated by the Constitution. And we know during COVID, when the Postal Service were having its challenges, all of America was screaming, wait a minute, we need our Postal Service to work, our medicine, our bills, our checks. Uh, how small businesses operate. And 
few people know that the Postal Service does the last mile, UPS, Amazon, FedEx. They don't drive five miles to one house. They go to the local post office, drop it off, and let the post office deliver it. This country would not function if we did not have a strong and, and viable postal service. Mm -hmm. And we're also adding transparency reports so that the public can see what, how are we performing and what are we doing. You've been, uh, uh, okay, well, anyway, thank you so much, uh, Congresswoman. I really uh, appreciate your time. Congresswoman Brenda Lawrence of Michigan, I appreciate thank it. Thank you so much. The Supreme Court decision that could change the outcome of elections before even a single vote is cast. Stay with us. In our politics lead today, a win for Alabama Republicans delivered from the conservatives on the U.S. Supreme Court, allowing the state's congressional map to remain in place despite a lower court ruling that the new redistricting map violated the Voting Rights Act. Black citizens in Alabama make up more than a quarter of the state's population, but gerrymandering in the proposed map dilutes the potential political power of black voters, making them the majority in only one of seven congressional districts. In January, the lower court said, quote, black voters have less opportunity than other Alabamians to elect candidates of their choice to Congress, their suggestion, the lower court, is to redraw the lines to include another majority black congressional district. The U.S. Supreme Court, however, ordered Alabama to keep the status quo until justices take up the issue again next term, which means no new congressional map before Alabama's primary races in May and likely no new map before the midterms in November. Let's bring in CNN senior data reporter Harry Enton. And, and, and Harry, more broadly, states have been redrawing their congressional districts since the 2020 census as happens. How many are finished with the process as, uh, as many of these primary races get closer and closer? We're finally getting towards the finish line. I feel like this has been a very long redistricting process. But so far, basically, we have 37 states that have finished so far. That's 31 who have finished and then six that only have one congressional district, so they don't have to redraw. And that in total is 71 percent of congressional districts. So look, we still have about a third to go. But we're done with more than two-thirds. So, so we're getting there. And the redistricting, it depends upon the party in charge in the, in the legislature, on the state level, the governor. Both parties uh, can be ruthless in trying to uh, make as many uh, congressional districts uh, favor their voters, Democrats or Republicans. Is either party in a better position now in terms of just sheer numbers? Yeah, I mean, if you had asked me before redistricting occurred, which side would do better, I would have said Republicans all the time. But take a look at what's actually happened so far in the states that have completed their redistricting. And what, in fact, we see is that the number of districts that Joe Biden won has actually increased relative to the number of districts that Donald Trump won. Look, the old lines was 169 for Biden, the new lines 174. So you do see that Biden is winning more districts, at least in the lines that have currently been completed. But there's another way to look at it, right? Because there's polarization that's going on in this country right now. And what we really want to keep an eye on is what are the number of safe districts? And what we see is that both the number of safe districts for Democrats, the ones won by Biden by 10 plus or more, or the ones won by Trump by 10 plus or more, they both increase. But the number that Trump has won by 10 points or more have actually increased more. So from that point of view, Republicans have actually gained more than Democrats. It's a split decision. And that means probably more extremists on left and the left and the right and less compromise and coming together. Uh, speaking of competitive districts, 
Uh, are more or fewer competitive districts going to be up for grabs? Competitive districts have shrunk considerably from the old lines to the new lines. In fact, it's one of the largest shrinks that we've ever seen. So if we just look at the new lines versus the old lines in the states that have actually completed, what we see is that just 17 percent of the districts within the new lines are within 10 points of the national vote in 2020 versus 22 percent under the old lines. That's a considerable shrinkage. And if we look historically right, there have been considerably more, fewer competitive districts over the years. So right now it's just 17 percent. If you look back in 1982, for example, you'll see that it was considerably higher. It was 40 percent. That has been cut by more than half. That's partially redistricting and that's partially polarization that's been occurring. And you said 37 states are done. So what's left to be determined? Yeah, there are a few big states that are still on the aisle. So Pennsylvania is one of them. Ohio is another one. Florida is a big one. North Carolina and Ohio, Pennsylvania and Florida, all state Supreme Courts will have the ultimate final say in those. So still a lot out there, Jake. Harry Anton, thank you so much. Good to see you, my friend. Thank you. Coming up, buckle up. CNN goes to the highway of death to learn more about a deadly side effect from the pandemic that you have not heard about. Stay with us. In our national lead, the nation's roadways are deadlier than ever, according to new statistics. Deadly car crashes and pedestrian deaths have soared during the COVID pandemic. In Portland, Oregon, amidst a real risk to the city's homeless population, the mayor banned encampments near busy roads. After 63 pedestrians died in just one year, the highest number in three decades, and 70% of them were experiencing homelessness at the time. As CNN's Pete Montine reports, the reason behind this dangerous trend could be yet another pandemic side effect. Safety advocates call it an epidemic on our roads. This past Saturday alone, this head-on crash near Fresno killed five. And last month in Las Vegas, nine people were killed when police say a driver apparently ran a red light. This is an unfathomable tragedy that has forever altered the lives of so many people. New numbers from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration show in the first nine months of 2021, fatal crashes jumped by 12%, the biggest increase in the agency's history. More than 31,000 people were killed in car crashes. The numbers show that speeding and driving without a seatbelt has gone up during the pandemic. This is a national crisis. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg just unveiled the Biden administration's plan to make driving safer. Billions from the bipartisan infrastructure law to help counteract for human error behind the wheel. People make mistakes, but human mistakes don't always have to be lethal. It's very tough. It was March 17, 2000, when Cynthia Jones's sister Karen pulled over to fix her gas cap when she was hit by a drunk driver. Cynthia identified her sister's body. She would want me out here to uh, make a difference in saving more lives because she didn't have to go that way. The crash happened here on Indian Head Highway in Maryland. Last year, the highest recorded speed here was 149 miles per hour. Safety advocates call it the highway of death. It's straight shot and a few traffic lights uh, and people use it as a, as a raceway. If you want to speed, this is the place to do it. Some of the money from the DOT's new national roadway safety strategy will go to redesigning dangerous roads in hopes of suppressing crash numbers that were going down until now. People should be outraged. National Transportation Safety Board Chair Jennifer Homendy was herself rear-ended at a Virginia intersection last year. 
Her agency has recommended that automakers install automatic braking and collision warnings in all cars, but regulators have not yet acted. So we have to change. We need all stakeholders to come to the table, and we need to build in redundancy so that people survive crashes. Both vehicles went up in flames. Reverend Dr. James Screen says 80 people have been killed on this stretch of Indian Head Highway in the last 15 years. He says directing more federal funding to combat dangerous driving is only the start of a road to lasting change. It's got to be hard to see. I mean, you're doing this interview and people are whizzing by you. Yes, that's that's a part of the uh, indifference that people have about driving. As I say, this contentious type of entitlement mindset. You know, I do as I please, whatever I can get away with. And so we have to hit that head on in some type of way where it won't be all people, but at least most people where we can manage it in a better way than what we're doing now. This is the evening rush on Indian Head Highway. Clearly more people are commuting and the NTSB says that means these numbers are not going down anytime soon. In 2022, the state of Maryland is averaging more than one fatal car crash each day. One of those crashes was here on this stretch of highway, the highway of death, Jake. All right. Pete Montine in Fort Washington, Maryland. Thank you so much. The Chinese government is changing how movies are made in Hollywood. They're not doing it through censorship, but they are having a tremendous influence on Skyfall and many more coming up in our Behind China's Wall series. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour... Ethan did it. That's the text message sent by the mom of Ethan Crumbly after the Oxford, Michigan school shooting. We have new details about what the accused shooter's parents knew and when they knew it. Plus, the highest ranking Republican in the country takes on the Republican National Committee. We'll show you what Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell had to say about the RNC's censure of two Republican members of Congress. And leading right now, Putin's crude insult. The Russian president fires off some Apparent trash talk at the Ukrainian president. Putin's less than diplomatic comments leading Western diplomats to wonder, did he just make a sexual joke about a fellow head of state? As CNN's Nick Robertson reports, President Putin's derogatory language comes as European leaders are undertaking a diplomatic blitz across the continent. Close to Ukraine, Russian troops, a clear and present threat overshadowing President Emmanuel Macron's high-stakes diplomacy. Following a five-hour meeting, President Vladimir Putin's innuendo-laden language dampening hopes further, demanding Ukraine and its president, Volodymyr Zelensky, submit to his will on the Minsk peace talks, intended to end fighting with pro-Russian separatists. Like it or don't like it, it's your duty, my beauty. Barely 16 hours later, as Macron met Zelensky, the Ukrainian president responded to Putin's apparent insult, parrying with diplomacy. Ukraine is indeed a beauty. As far as him saying, my Ukraine, is a slight overstatement. As far as take it is concerned, I think Ukraine is very patient because that's wisdom. Even so, Macron claiming small victories on the latest Minsk talks to end tensions in eastern Ukraine. I was able to obtain a very clear and explicit commitment from President Putin and Zelensky to the strict basis of the Minsk agreement and in particular to strict compliance. 
and appearing to think, Putin agreeing to a military de-escalation, later scotched by the Kremlin. Reality is, Putin is giving up no ground, nor is he making clear what his next move will be, all the while keeping up his demands. We are categorically against the expansion of NATO. The Russian leader seemingly waiting while diplomacy plays out to see what Western weaknesses appear. There will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. President Biden's insistence, Germany in lockstep with US sanctions under scrutiny. The transatlantic partnership is key for peace in Europe. And this is what Putin also has to understand, that he will not be able to split European Union or to split NATO, we will act together. Round three of Macron's diplomacy late Tuesday, meeting Scholz on his return from DC, along with Poland's president, Andrzej Duda, whose NATO nation just received 1,700 troops from the US 82nd Airborne. We must find a solution to avoid war. This is our primary task. I believe we will do it. Today, the most important thing is unity and solidarity. So Putin watching all of this, no doubt, uh, making very few moves himself. And the reality is that if there is uh, a war, if he does create an invasion in Ukraine, U.S. officials believe that there could be tens of thousands of civilian deaths and it would create a crisis, a, a refugee crisis across Europe. Of course, the diplomacy that Macron is spearheading is all aimed at overcoming that. And it's not the end of the track for the diplomacy. has still got threads to continue to follow up on. Uh, but this at the moment is a kind of period where everyone goes away, sees what Macron has got, figures out where they can move forward. And as I say again, Putin just watches, watches for the openings. And Nick Robertson reporting live from Moscow. Thanks so much. CNN's Sam Kiley joins us now live from Kharkiv, Ukraine. Sam, President Putin made this seemingly very crude joke today designed to insult the Ukrainian president. Why? Well, I think a part of it is playing to the gallery or his own base there in Russia, Jake. Uh, he enjoys this macho, uh, soldiery sort of language. In the past, he's referred to how uh, Russia got screwed by, now his words, uh, by NATO uh, and uh, Western Europe in, over alleged commitments that he says were made and then broken when there were promises made in the late 90s that there wouldn't be an expansion of NATO into Eastern Europe. Of course, that is hotly disputed by those countries that did join NATO. This is all part of the language, part of the machismo. If you combine that with the muscle moves that we're seeing in Belarus with uh, an uplift of some 30,000 Russian troops joining Belarusian troops uh, for exercises scheduled later on this month and increasing numbers of troops also not far from where I'm standing here. I'm about 30 miles from the Russian border with uh, Ukraine. So, Jake, all of that part of this ongoing attention seeking, too. I mean, look at the regular parade of international figures. One has almost lost count of the numbers of heads of government and heads of state that have beaten the path to the Kremlin to try to figure out how to get Vladimir Putin to not make good on a threat he hasn't actually explicitly made, which is to invade this country, something that uh, US intelligence estimates is 70% of the way uh, in terms of his troop deployments so ready to go, Jake. 
Are these diplomatic efforts that are going on that you referred to, are they making any progress? And French President Macron warned that this could take months to resolve. Well, any uh, effort that keeps people talking and indeed keeps Russian troops uh, in that environment will be seen as a positive sign. And that is uh, largely to do with climate, Jake. Uh, the ground will be frozen up until maybe the beginning of um, mid-March, mid-March, and then it turns into a quagmire uh, that would be very difficult to move large amounts of troops across if that is indeed uh, Putin's intent. So anything that keeps these negotiations going at a most cynical level means that an invasion might be postponed. But the other thing is it gives uh, the diplomats around the world opportunities first to paper over their own cracks. We've seen cracks emerging between who gets to say where Germany gets its gas from, Uh, And at the same time, of course, trying to figure out where Putin might go. Is he going to do a full scale invasion or a little incursion, Jake? All right. Sam Kiley reporting live from Ukraine. Thanks so much. Joining us now live in studio to discuss the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Bill Taylor. Also joining us, Dr. Evelyn Farkas, the former deputy assistant secretary of defense for Russia, Ukraine and Eurasia. So, Dr. Farkas, I hate to even explain this joke, but what Putin said is a reference to, as I as was explained earlier in the show, uh, to arranged marriages and marital rape. Mm-hmm. And the idea, the, the quote is, uh, like it or not, it's your duty, my beauty. Uh, mm-hmm. And he's saying that to the Ukrainian president. Um, is that significant that he said that? Well, it shows, Jake, that he does not view Zelensky as his equal. Um, he has a history of doing this. Frankly, he did it with the Georgian leader, Mikhail Shakashvili when the Georgians wanted to assert their independence and when they first started to pull away from the Russian Federation. Of course, they were invaded in 2008. So he sees Zelensky as very much not as equal. He wants to put him down publicly, embarrass him. Zelensky's kind of, um, he hits back. So he's embarrassed Putin a little bit or tried. He's quite funny. You know, he's a comedian. But the other part of this that's really disturbing, I think, watching as a woman <laughs> is what Vladimir Putin's done internally when it comes to addressing domestic violence. I mean, under his regime, they've fallen backwards in Russia, and it's not a, like a very happy place if you're a woman experiencing domestic violence. So there's a real, you know, there's a rea- reality underlying that. But, the, but the, in terms of the political context, he's just trying to bully him further. And Ambassador Taylor, the Kremlin's announced, Kremlin announced today that Russian forces are going to leave Belarus, uh, which is right next to... Uh, Ukraine. They've been conducting joint military drills there. The Kremlin offered no timeline for when they're going to leave. The Pentagon says Putin is still adding to his forces along Ukraine's borders. If those Russian forces do leave Belarus, and that's obviously not guaranteed, should NATO interpret that as any sort of de-escalation, especially with so many other Russian forces still surrounding Ukraine and other parts uh, of the border? Jake, we'll be looking carefully for any sign of de-escalation. Um, because President Putin has, uh, has, has a big problem with pulling that trigger. He knows that the, that the sanctions, that the, that the increase in military assistance to Ukraine, that the movement of U.S. troops into Eastern Europe, these are, are actions that, that the United States is taking, that NATO is taking, that he has to deal with. He's also, he may have problems at home, Jake. He may have problems with an uprising. The Russian people are not eager to go to war against Ukraine. He may have a a problem with resistance to his own decisions. So even though he's an autocrat, I've heard this from other uh, non-American ambassadors and people in embassies, which is that 
what we call in the United States gold star moms, the, the, the moms yeah. of, of soldiers who died in service to their country, that the gold star moms in Russia uh, have in the past risen up and criticized Putin for his military escapades. Yeah, actually a large part of why the war in Afghanistan in the 80s became so unpopular in Russia was because of these mothers watching their kids coming home. And remember the Russian government or the Soviet army and the Russian army, these are not volunteer militaries, right? So these people's children are being taken from them, not voluntarily, and they come back in a coffin. So those are very active organizations to this very day. And even if you're an autocrat, you don't want people going to the streets. And if the workers, if the everyday people, if enough of them go to the streets, that could force a regime change. I mean, Putin saw it in Ukraine. And, and talk about, if you would, uh, Ambassador Taylor, about the diplomatic efforts, uh, all the you know, shuttle diplomacy, all the people coming uh, to Moscow, including uh, President Macron of France. They're coming to Moscow, but they're also going to Kiev. Um, and that's a good thing. In They're Ukraine, been, yeah. In Ukraine, the capital of Ukraine. And they, the foreign ministers are going there, the presidents are going there. They are keeping President Zelensky very well informed as to what the discussions are going on. That's important. That's important because the ultimate decision maker on Ukrainian sovereignty is President Zelensky or the Ukrainian people. So that, that parade of, uh, of officials going through Ukraine keeps the discussion going. Yes, they're talking to the, to the Russians, but they're keeping the, the Ukrainians um, informed. How much, I know um, part of your jobs uh, at the Pentagon and at the State Department uh, is psychological profiles of these individuals. It's important to understand where they're coming from psychologically. How much does Putin just want the attention because of whatever issues he might have? Well, I'll defer to the diplomat first. <laughs> <clears throat> so if Mr. Putin wants attention, I don't think that's the main motivator. Um, I think he is doing things because he really wants Ukraine. He wants to take over Ukraine. Uh, he has said so. He said that Ukraine is not really a country. It's not really a nation. Uh, it has no sovereignty outside of his control. Uh, so that's what he wants. Now, by doing that, he's drawing attention to himself. Probably not great attention. If he, again, if he pulls the trigger and kills that number of, of, of civilians, unprovoked attack on civilians, that's war crimes. And do you think this, it could be tens of thousands uh, of Ukrainians killed innocent citizens? Yes, but I don't think he'll go for the whole hog. I mean, I think what he really wants is control over Ukraine because he doesn't want democracy there. Why? Because that threatens him. The Russian people will see democracy over the border like the Ukrainians saw it in Poland, and they'll want it for themselves. So he has to shut that down. And for some reason, he's feeling like time is running out because he engineered this crisis right now. Yeah. All right. Uh, Dr. Farkas, Ambassador Taylor, good to see both of you. Thank you so much. The top Republican in the Senate now blasting his own party over the jaw-dropping censures. Then, trucks backed up for miles after protesters shut down a key bridge connecting the U.S. and Canada. Why that could cause even more supply chain problems here in the U.S. Stay with us. We have some breaking news in our politics lead. Members of the Congressional Black Caucus are demanding an apology from a Republican member of Congress over an alleged inappropriate incident on Capitol Hill today. Let's get straight to CNN's Manu Raju. Manu, walk us through what happened. Yeah, this is a chairwoman of the Congressional Black Caucus who essentially is accusing a veteran House Republican of putting his hands on her in an, in an altercation that occurred in the Capitol. She tweeted this. This is from Joyce Beatty, the congresswoman. She said, today, while I headed, while headed to the House floor for votes, I respectfully asked my colleague 
Congressman Hal Rogers of Kentucky to put on a mask while boarding the train. He then poked my back, demanded I get on the train. When I asked him not to touch me, he responded, kiss my ass. Now, she goes on to say, this is the kind of disrespect we have been fighting for years and indicative of the larger issue we have with GOP members flaunting health and safety mandates designed to keep us and our staff safe. She ends by saying that, Congressman Hal Rogers, when you are ready to grow up and apologize for your behavior, you know where to find me. Now, just moments ago, members of the Congressional Black Caucus gathered on the steps of the Capitol, berating Hal Rogers for his treatment of Congresswoman Joyce Beatty, demanding a public apology, accusing him of assaulting her, and also making, accusing her him of uh, acting in ways considered racist in the words of some of the members and demanding that he say something about this. But before this ha- all ha- before this press conference happened, Jake, and after Congresswoman Beatty revealed that this occurred, that Rogers came to the House floor and he refused to comment on this altogether. Reporters asked him multiple times to discuss this incident that the Congresswoman tweeted about. He would not talk about it. His office has not yet commented on it as well. And it's unclear what Democrats might do if they decide not to, if Rogers decides not to apologize. But this is what one Congressman, Brenda Lawrence, said just moments ago. Talk about preventing workplace harassment. This was harassment of a woman, a black woman, and a woman in leadership because he put his hands on her. He told her to kiss his part of his body. And I can tell you, being a little black girl from the east side of Detroit, I would not take that standing or sitting. And I'm not going to take it standing or sitting for one of our own to be disrespected for some reason. There seems to be this attitude of not accountability. I can say and do anything that I want. Today we're standing together. It stops today. And an apology publicly should be made. And we need to set an example never again. Now I yield. Now, Democrats would not say what they would do if Rogers does not publicly apologize, whether they would censure him. But, Jake, this is just all indicative of just the poisonous relationships between the two sides on the House side of the Capitol. All right, Manu, Roger, thank you so much. Appreciate that report. Coming up, a top Republican in the Senate just criticized the Republican National Committee. That's next. Stay with us. And we're back with our politics lead, a dam of sorts breaking on Capitol Hill today. A flood of Republican lawmakers now condemning the Republican National Committee. The RNC on Friday, as you might recall, censured two of its own, Republicans Kinzinger and Cheney, and seemingly referred to the January 6th insurrection as, quote, legitimate political discourse, unquote. CNN's Ryan Nobles is live on Capitol Hill. Ryan, the latest condemnation comes from the top Republican in the Senate, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Yeah, that's right, Jake. And we should point out, this isn't uh, a universal breaking of the dam. There are still quite a few Republicans that are defending the RNC's actions. But it is significant that you have someone like Mitch McConnell breaking with the RNC. And he did so on two fronts. First, he made it clear that he did not agree with their language that anything that took place here on January 6th was legitimate political discourse. Uh, McConnell saying that he was here. He said everyone he was talking to that day was here, and this was a violent insurrection. It was not any form of 
legitimate political discourse. And McConnell took it even a step further, and he said that he strongly disagreed with the RNC's decision to censure two of its members, that being Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. Uh, uh, McConnell saying that this is not the posture that the RNC should have, that they should be about bringing the party together and not trying to separate them. And that's effectively what that censure did. And he basically said that wasn't the RNC's job. Now, while McConnell was pretty vocal in his condemnation of the RNC's actions, there were a number of Republicans still defending them, among them some of the most powerful leaders in the House of Representatives, including Elise Stefanik, the conference chair, and the minority leader, Kevin McCarthy, who, who argued that when the RNC was talking about legitimate political discourse, they weren't talking about the violence and the chaos that took place here at Capitol Hill, but instead talking about RNC members who'd been subpoenaed by the January 6th Select Committee. Now, I didn't mention who those RNC members were, Jake, but we know that some of the group of RNC members who were subpoenaed by the committee, that same group of individuals that tried to hand over a fake set of electors to the Congress to try and have those replace the ones that were duly impaneled by the voters of this country. Jake. All right, Ryan Nobles on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. Let's discuss with our panel. Uh, Congressman Dent, let's start with you, a former Republican congressman from Pennsylvania. We've been all waiting and hoping that the Republican Party is going to, those of us who want there to be a strong fact-based Republican Party, has been going to come, the fever's going to break, and people are going to realize like January 6th was, was hideous. Uh, and that Cheney and Kinzinger are not doing anything wrong when they're trying to get to the bottom of it. Um, are we getting there with the condemnations we're hearing from the likes of Mitch McConnell? Well, I'm, pl- I'm pleased they're all condemning this. Well, not all. Well, well many are condemning this. Yeah. But, I mean, uh, look, what the RNC did, you know, was, a, was an act of political stupidity and malpractice on a titanic scale. I mean, to say legitimate political discourse of people who are assaulting police officers, desecrating the Capitol impeding Congress's work. I mean, it's simply horrible. Uh, And for them to do this uh, and draw attention to Donald Trump and the past, rather than focus on, oh, defeating Democrats, maybe, and making the Democrats the issue, their politics is supposed to be the business of the Republican National Committee. You would never know it by what they just did. I mean, this is beyond comprehensible uh, for most of us. It's, It's sad. And I think the reason why they did this in part is because of those subpoenas. I think some of those subpoenas that were issued to the fake electors are getting very close to some members of the Republican National Committee. Hmm. And now they feel very threatened. And that's why they went after Liz and Adam, who are honorable people. Uh, as people that cover Capitol Hill, what's your reaction? Do you, do you think, Aisha Roscoe, uh, that, I mean, we, we did see today uh, individuals who are, who are, you know, strong supporters of Trump, like uh, Senator John Cornyn, he told CNN, I think Republicans... Uh, ought to stop shooting at Republicans, uh, including the chairman uh, and Senate uh, Republican Whip John Thune. It's just not a constructive move when you're trying to win elections and take on Democrats to take on Republicans. It's just not helpful. How do you think the Republican Party is going to work its way through this? Well, well, we've kind of seen this before, right? Like right after January 6th, you heard some very strong statements, um, you know, condemning the actions. And, you you know, it seemed like, okay, there was a line being drawn in the sand. Okay, we we will we will follow Trump. We will go with what he has to say. But on this, he went too far. That's it. 
over time, we have seen a revisionist history. Um, and usually what we have seen is when Republicans speak out and say, you know what, Trump went too far, then Trump goes, you're a rhino, you're this, you're that, and then they get in line. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or they get quiet, like, or they just kind of try to hope it goes away. We have not seen people really stand up and keep doing it, other than people like Liz Cheney and, and, and Adam Kinzinger, and we see what's happening to them. Um, so, the, so the RNC has sent a message, if you want to keep talking, this is what can happen to you. And there also seems to be no effort by Republicans to seek consequences, whether it's, you know, really putting the pressure on the RNC to shake up House, to get people out of the party who are continuing to perpetuate the big lie, are saying that they think that that January 6th shouldn't be investigated. There's no effort like that from Republicans. And even the comments that you read, Jake, from Senators Thune and Cornyn, they didn't specifically talk about the legitimate discourse line. They said they focused on the process of Kinzinger and Cheney being censured, which is a part of the same thing, right? They're being censured because they're telling the truth about what happened on January 6th and because they're telling the truth about the fact that they're worried that Trump and the Republicans like Ronna McDaniel, who are following him, may be threatening future valid elections in the future. I'm wondering, progressive activists like yourself, watching this all happen, do you think, I mean, is there some schadenfreude? Is there some enjoyment, like they're shooting each other, this is ridiculous? Or do you think, I'm an American, I want this party to get its act together? I think it's a little bit of both. (laughs) Okay, thank you for the honest answer. (laughs) Um, More probably the former than the latter. Um, Well, the thing that I find, there's a couple points I find interesting. First, I think that the RNC is being very clear of who they want their party to be. And I appreciate the transparency and honesty. I think Mitch McConnell is saying, oh, no, there are people that are Republicans that we're going to need the vote to actually flip the House and the Senate. People like Congressman Charlie. Exactly. And by censuring them, I'm at risk of not becoming the leader of the Senate. And that is what Mitch McConnell's key uh, point is. I don't think Mitch McConnell came out and said his points about um, the center because he felt like he was moved to do it for country. I think he was moved to do it for power. Um, And so as an activist, as someone who's thinking about it, it's like, how do we go and tell the American people that Mitch McConnell, the Republican Party, they're not trying to get their act together. They are doing this strictly for power. They are doing this uh, power over country. Um, And I mean, I hope they don't get their act together because I think we need to hold the House, the Senate, keep the White House in 2024 with larger margins so we can actually get an agenda uh, passed that delivers for the people. Well, as the only person at the table who's been censured by, by a committee, Republican committee, I can tell you these are really stupid. You were censured when? Oh, I was censured oh, uh, over uh, marriage equality by one of my county committees. I was oh, censured sorry. over Donald Trump. And they, they, they just look foolish. And, this is, it, and, and by the way, I, I don't encourage anyone to censure members of their own party, any party leaders. But if you're going to censure somebody at the RNC, hey, they could have gone after well, maybe Marjorie Taylor Greene right. or Matt Gates or, you know, Paul Gosar, who was the keynote yeah, speaker I mean, at a white supremacist Yeah, they could, have, right. they could have done that. Somehow, uh, you know, didn't offend anybody. By the way, you know, and I saw Kirsten Sinema get censured, I think, by the Arizona party. Yeah, over, Arizona Democratic I mean, Party. I, I think this is just foolish. But what's happening is these parties are, are censuring people uh, who are what I would call mainstream people, whether it's Adam Kinzinger or Liz Cheney or, you know, uh, Kirsten Cinema, they're doing this because they're responding to the most uh, angry elements of their bases. And I think this is, uh, it's terrible for the country. So many people who are involved in politics in Washington simply play to a primary base, a general election for most of them is a formality, 
because it's their, their districts are so lopsided, and that's what we're dealing with in this country. I, I, the only reason I, I want to step in here for a second, we just got an update to the story we heard from CNN's Manu Raju, Republican Congressman Hal Rogers of Kentucky, uh, has said he has apologized to Democratic Congresswoman Joyce Beatty uh, after he told her to kiss his ass. Apologies for the language. Uh, Rogers saying he understands his words were, quote, not acceptable. Um, so I wouldn't say, like, this is great news, <laughs> but at least there, at least he realized he crossed a line. At least he realized that, that, is, yeah. that telling a fellow member of Congress to kiss his ass is not acceptable. But boy, am I lowering that. Boy, is the standard yeah. low. <laughs> the, 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 the standard is pretty low. And I mean, we should point out that in Congress, there has been violence towards members of Congress in the past in history. I mean, you had a member of Congress cane another member of Congress um, before during the, the Civil, Civil War. Yeah, during yeah. the Civil War. So, I mean, things aren't that bad. But it is it is another sign of how um, not only can these people not get together to make laws for the rest of the country, they can't even just get together and just do regular workplace stuff. Like, usually you can't curse out your coworkers. Like, that's just, like, a bottom line. Uh, do, you, do you find things worse on Capitol Hill than you've seen it before? Yeah, you know, I've been covering since uh, the Obama administration, the Hill, and it, it's nothing like what it used to be. And you started to see the beginning of it when Obama took power, right, uh, with these far extremes. But I think that, you know, what's different here is that uh, Republicans are making very clear that they don't want to abide by public health guidelines. And so if they take control of the House, you know, uh, Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy has said that they would undo all of the public health guidelines, you know, whether it's wearing masks or requiring to know if people are vaccinated. And so right now they're running on that and heading into the midterms, as well as uh, the fact that I know that, Congressman, you said that Kinzinger and uh, Cheney, you consider them mainstream, but it's very clear that those two lawmakers are not mainstream anymore in the Republican Party. Yeah, and just, just, to, and just to underline the point, not because mm-hmm. they're not very conservative Republicans, right. Right. because they're they are. In fact, Liz Cheney is probably one of the most conservative Republicans in Congress, certainly more than McCarthy or Scalise or... Uh, Stefanik, but because they believe in the facts about the election. Right. Which is crazy. Thanks to all of you. you. A growing protest over COVID mandates and restriction is now shutting down part of an international border. We're going to go live there next. Stay with us. In our health lead, you're watching live pictures from around the Ambassador Bridge, which connects Detroit, Michigan to Windsor, Ontario. There you see anti-vaccine mandate protesters Blocking trucks. It's the busiest international crossing in North America. Now Canadian police are warning that the economy and the supply chain could suffer. Let's get right to CNN senior national correspondent Miguel Marquez, who is live for us in Detroit. Miguel, is, is there any sign of these protesters letting up? It, it's a little bit. It looks like the traffic is starting to flow very, very slowly from the Canadian side. We're on the U.S. side here. This should be a very busy Uh, area where cars are coming through. That is the bridge over there. We are seeing just a trickle of trucks and have for many hours now coming from the Canada side. Protesters are still there in big numbers. They are still trying to move them out. It is not clear what police in Ottawa are going to do at this point other than talk to protesters. They've been uh, putting out information that they are trying to get traffic around them, trying to talk to the protesters and ensure that they can uh, do their protests without blocking traffic. It's not clear how much more patience they're going to have for that. It's been about 24 hours now since this protest uh, started. About 40,000 cars and commercial vehicles come over this bridge every day. About $300 million in goods cross this bridge every day. It's going through other routes right now, but if this keeps up, everyone on both sides of the bridge are going to get quite tired of it. 
Jake. All right, activists against the uh, vaccine mandate and other public health steps. Thank you so much, Miguel Marquez in Detroit. Let's bring in the former director of the CDC, Dr. Thomas Frieden. Dr. Frieden, so 90% of Canadian truckers are vaccinated, according to the Canadian government. So it seems like the very vocal minority is responsible for creating this massive disruption to the economy. Uh, What do you think? Should Canada let truckers opt out of a vaccine mandate, given that so many of them have already gotten their shots? There's so many things going on right now, Jake, it's hard to keep track. On the one hand, we have the Omicron variant fading fast in the U.S. Cases are plummeting. On the other hand, we still have more than 2,000 deaths a day. On the one hand, you've got very high vaccine uptake numbers and a remarkably effective vaccine that's doing a great job preventing hospitalizations and deaths. On the other hand, in this country, you still have over 50 million people who haven't gotten their first shot, 100 million people haven't gotten a booster. Uh, There are real challenges here. And for some of these things, there isn't going to be a clear way forward. But we do need to recognize the virus is adapting and we need to adapt. And one of the things that we need to do is make sure that we are sharing the information when we have it and reaching people with messages that they can hear. Mandates are a hard thing for people to accept. Some of them are clearly justified. Some of them are more challenging. Five governors in the U.S. have announced that they're lifting mask mandates indoors or in schools over the next two months. Community transmission is still considered pretty high by the CDC in 99 percent of counties in the U.S. Do you think lifting these mandates is a good idea? I think what we're going to see is cases plummet over the next few weeks. So it's, you know, early February now. Places that are saying we're going to do this in March As long as nothing unexpected happens between now and March, that's probably fine. Places that are saying, let's just get rid of them because we're tired of COVID, that's probably not such a good idea. We've still got a huge number of cases, lots of transmission. It's plummeting, but we need to hang in there for a few more weeks so it comes down. I do think we're in better shape than we have ever been in this pandemic. We have more vaccine, more immunity, more options for treatment, more tests better masks, a better understanding of masking. And the issue isn't so much mask mandate or no, it's a graduated approach. If you're sick, even in the future, good idea to wear a mask if you go out. If you've got a severe immunocompromise, you may wanna wear a mask if you go out. So this is a different approach to masking, mandate or not, that I think we're going to need to adopt if we're going to adapt not just COVID, but the other infectious diseases out there. So the White House tells CNN that federal officials are, quote, thinking about what comes next in terms of a return to, quote, normal. Um, Is it appropriate, do you think, to talk about dropping masks indoors everywhere, uh, holding large indoor events, going back to pre-pandemic practices, given, as you noted, we still have more than 2,000 deaths a day in the U.S. due to COVID? The virus is adapting to us. We need to adapt to the virus. And that means adapting as cases change, as hospitalizations decline, Uh, The severity of the variant is different. There are times when we should absolutely loosen up and and have more contact. If people want a mask, they can, but allow more contact. I hope we won't have to have much more dialing back up that kind of restriction. But no one knows for sure what's coming. We may get a deadlier variant in the future, but right now that's not out there. So right now we need to be preparing to open up as safely as possible. That means vaccinating, boosting, masking up when appropriate, and getting tested quickly so you can get treated well if you do get sick. All right, Dr. Tom Frieden, thank you so much. Appreciate it. How the Chinese government is influencing and even changing 
The films that come out of Hollywood, including movies such as the reboot of Top Gun. We're going to go behind China's wall. That's next. Now our Behind China's Wall series, in which we go behind the fanfare and the glamour of the current Olympic Games. The Chinese government obviously hoping to use the games to distract the world from its crackdowns on freedoms and crimes against humanity and genocide. Today we're going to take a look at how the Chinese government, in effect, censors much of what comes out of the Hollywood film industry. They don't do this, of course, through direct control. They do it through their enormous economic leverage and the fear from studios on missing out on a market of 1.4 billion people in China. Here to discuss, Eric Schwartzel. He's a Hollywood reporter for the Wall Street Journal. He's author of a brand new book just released today. It's called Red Carpet, Hollywood, China, and the Global Battle for Cultural Supremacy. Uh, Thank you so much for being here, Eric. So one of the films you write about, which really captures the impact the Chinese government is now able to, to have on American movies, is found in Top Gun, released in the 80s, and its upcoming sequel. When the original was released in 86, offending China, not a concern. But for the sequel, the studio has made a significant change to the look on the jacket of this iconic character, uh, Maverick. Explain to folks what's going on here. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, in 1986, not only was Hollywood not concerned about the Chinese market, but I mean, do we have an example of more raw, raw cinema than the original Top Gun. I mean, enlistment shot up after that movie came out. And then when this more recent version uh, was advertised uh, a couple years ago, people noticed, as you said, that the Taiwanese and the Japanese flag had been removed from Maverick's jacket. And there's a very clear reason why. And that is that in the time between the original Top Gun and this reboot, China's box office has grown to be the biggest in the world. And any movie produced by a Hollywood studio that's as expensive as Top Gun needs that market often to turn a profit. So that means that even down to something as small as a flag on a jacket might need to be removed in case it offends the Chinese censors who decide whether or not this movie will get into those Chinese theaters. Right. China obviously does not consider Taiwan to be an independent country. Anything that calls into into question uh, the one China policy is a political third rail for the communist government. Um, You write about Brad Pitt starring in the 1997 film Seven Years in Tibet, another country that China has conquered. And being in that film landed Brad Pitt in very hot water with Chinese authorities. They essentially banned Brad Pitt and his film from China for years and years. Tell us more about that. Yeah, not only that, and this was back in 1997 when the Chinese box office was an economic afterthought for for studios. But Sony, which released Seven Years in Tibet, quickly learned that it was not just the studio access that was threatened by the release of this film about a political exile and history that China would rather not see on the big screen. It was not the studio that was threatened, but actually Sony proper. And this explains a lot whenever you see how these conglomerates have taken over Hollywood, why a movie that might seem like a minor production produced by a subdivision of a subdivision actually becomes this kind of radioactive element that threatens the entire corporate structure. So if Disney makes a movie that offends the Chinese authorities, it's not just that movie that might be lost, but also theme park plans, consumer products plans. I mean, there's billions of dollars on the line for any of these relatively small infractions. One of the craziest examples in your book um, is the 2012 remake of the film Red Dawn, uh, starring another top star, Chris Hemsworth. 
China was supposed to be the antagonist in the movie, the country that conquers the United States. But after the film was shot, they made a little bit of a change. Tell us about that. I mean, it was a costly change. I mean, the, the movie had finished filming with the story being China invading the U.S. in this remake. Of course, in the original, it was the Soviets. This time they updated it for the, uh, the 2010s and made it China. And then when China made it clear that they were going to be very angry if this movie came out as it was shot, MGM spent a million dollars hiring a visual effects firm here in Burbank to go in and swap out the flags, swap out the dialogue, and make it a North Korean invasion. Now, critics and even the writers of the film itself pointed out it was a little less plausible than a Chinese <laughs> invasion. But, but nonetheless, this lesson was ab absorbed by all of Hollywood because ever since then, that movie came out in 2012. Since then, it's been more than a decade. We have not had a major studio put a movie into production with China as the villain. Of course not. Profits above all else. Eric Schwartzel author of Red Carpet, Hollywood, China, and the Global Battle for Cultural Supremacy. Thank you so much. Best of luck with the book. Thank you so much. They've got quite a climb after coasting through the pandemic. Peloton is facing a major shakeup. Stay with us. Our money lead now, Peloton, is slimming down. The flailing fitness company announcing today it's trimming about 20% of its workforce. That's 2,800 workers including its embattled CEO. This announcement comes as Peloton tries to fend off potential acquisition bids from companies such as Amazon, Nike, and Apple. It's been hard times for Peloton as of late. At the beginning of the pandemic, sales boomed as people stuck at home snapped up home fitness equipment. But as vaccinations increased and people returned to their gyms, shares of price, share prices tumbled, falling more than 80% from January of 2021. Even Hollywood isn't giving the company a break. Two popular TV show characters had heart attacks while using Peloton bikes in recent months. And in what Peloton says is part of its severance for laid-off workers, it's giving away a one-year digital subscription. How very generous. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage now continues with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in the Situation Room. I will see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.